Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 84 Capes, Cowls, and Villains Foul, and Brave New World. I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for the comments about the past few episodes of the podcast. Some folks liked what we did to close out 2022 and said a lot of nice things, while others commented that they wished we'd done what we usually do instead. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I do take your comments and suggestions seriously, so keep them coming. And I do take requests, so if there's a topic in the role-playing game world you'd like to see me cover, let me know. Doesn't have to be a game, a system, or a creator either. I mean, we did an entire episode on dice. So, obviously I am willing to go to the four corners of the gaming world for this show. This week we're deep diving a couple of superhero games that, in my opinion, couldn't be any different from one another. So, rather than waste time with brief descriptions, why don't we crank up the tour bus and get to the first of our two subjects for today. Capes, Cowls, and Villains Foul had a long path to walk before it saw the light of publication in 2012, Our story begins in late 2009 when Cynthia Celeste Miller, who is the owner and was for the longest time sole employee of Spectrum Games, found herself having a conversation with her longtime friend Barack Blackburn. Barack, like Cynthia, was an avid gamer and he had this idea of creating a superhero game, but he didn't want to just create any superhero game. He wanted his based on the Cartoon Action Hour game, which, ironically enough, had also been designed by Cynthia Celeste Miller. Blackburn's reasoning for using that system was that it's a rather rules-light system, which would make his game stand out, since the majority of superhero games have a ton of rules or restrictions that don't always allow you to be all the superhero you were meant to be. Think I'm exaggerating? Pick up a copy of the Marvel or DC role-playing games. The rules are a bit, uh, let's just say tight. Kind of like me in an extra-large t-shirt. Get that mental image out of your head. Now, one of the issues Blackburn and Miller ran into when designing the game was that basing it off of Cartoon Action Hour, had the, the second season of the game had been released a year earlier, and it was based on 1980s cartoon superheroes like... Transformers, and Masters of the Universe. Now, while those would certainly make for a fun game, Blackburn and Miller were concerned about tying the new game into that system, fearing that gamers were going to find it a little campy. So it was decided that rather than create an expansion to Cartoon Action Hour, they were going to have to build an entirely new game from the ground up. In working out how you build that new game, Miller was inspired by the origins of Cartoon Action Hour. See, back in 2001, she'd released an early version of Those Rules as a free PDF, and Those Rules were known as Four Colors or 4C, and those have been described over the years as a beginner-friendly rulebook. So it was specifically created for superheroes, and it was set in the 1930s and 40s, which comic fans are going to tell you it was the golden age of superhero stories. 4C was a D12 system, which means you'd roll a D12, add the modifier, and compare the results to the difficulty level. For the record, it was also a high roll system, which means high rolls good, low rolls bad. Sorry, I needed to do something different for a minute. 4C presented several other concepts that would be used for CCVF, though many of them would be at least somewhat modified. Average human traits had a value of zero. You wouldn't describe a trait that a character is just meh in, a zero rating for a trait costs zero build points, and maybe most importantly, 4C tossed up the ideas of powers and abilities from a list. 
The overall thought was that the player should have the ability to lay out and define all of the aspects of the powers that they would use, with some input from the GM and their permission, of course. 4C also introduced the concepts of oomph and stunt points, which are a currency of sorts. They're hero points that could be used to modify die rolls to give the PCs an edge. The reason for the two names is that they were stunt points originally, but by season two of CAH, they'd become known as oomph. Just making things clear here, because hell, I was confused for a few minutes. 4C has one final piece of its legacy involved in CCVF, and that's the unique die system. There weren't a lot of games at the time using that particular system, and if we're being honest, there still aren't. By the rules, one was an auto-fail, while a 12 would give a special spectacular result, but it was not an automatic success, which makes it different from the D20 system. The name, Capes, Cowls, and Villains Foul, also has a connection to 4C, though it comes more from a joke from Cynthia Celeste Miller, who'd noted she'd written a small superhero system for Zan's Superhome website, and she'd used the name as a joke. Needless to say, the joke stuck in her head, and I guess the joke was on her because it eventually became the name for the finished product. I say eventually because CCVF wasn't the name for the game during the creation process. As late as August of 2010, the game was known as Omlevex. Omlevex was a campaign world created by Miller, and she'd intended to set the new game in that world, basically in order to avoid creating another world and to boost the sales for both. Kind of makes sense. Omlevex had been published in 2004 and had game stats for three of the most popular superhero games of the time. Mutants and Masterminds, Hero System, and Silver Age Sentinels. By 2010, the supplement had gone out of print and the rights had reverted back to Miller and Spectrum Games. So the original plan was to update the setting for 2010, reactivate the name, and put together a rule system for it in order to plug this superhero idea into it. That ran into some roadblocks, as updating the system was hitting up against the playtesters who were using their own characters based on Marvel and DC Comics and Games instead of the characters provided for the playtest. Which, by the way, if you've never been involved with a playtest, sometimes that's considered to be a no-no. If there's characters provided, you're supposed to use them. Just saying. So Miller had found herself in a bit of a pickle, but inspiration struck her while she was at Gen Con in 2010. She'd taken part in a game designer seminar and realized afterwards that if she was going to create a new superhero game, she'd need to ditch the prefab game world and give the GM and players the freedom to create their own world. She also realized that the majority of players were probably going to use Marvel and DC Comics and games as their inspiration for those characters. The playtests have proven that. So she ditched the idea of hanging the new game on the Omlevex framework. With Spectrum Games shifting its focus towards polishing the rules designed for the new game, any plans to call the new game Omlevex were dropped in favor of Capes, Cowls, and Villains Foul, which was official by September of 2010. By the way, Miller herself designed the logo from the game title, and that appears on the cover of the finished product. Now, just because Omlevex wasn't used for this game doesn't necessarily mean it's dead. While it's true that no new version of the system has yet seen the light of day, reports continue to come from Spectrum Games that they intend to update and release the system at some point. When it happens, we will take a look at it for this show, I can promise you. 
So, with the title in place and production finally wrapped, the full rules for CCVF were released as a PDF on the evening of August 4th, 2012. The softcover book was released a couple of weeks later, and it has been, since its release, a print-on-demand product. Kind of smart if you think about it that way. What that basically means is don't go looking for it at your local game shop or used bookstore. I'd suggest hitting up their website, spectrum-games.com, and get yourself a copy. The reason why I said that could be a smarter idea is if you do it as print on demand, you don't have stock that you have to deal with. Smarter in the long run sometimes. Now, I told you, this was a long road for the game. With the history covered, let's take a look at the system itself. We did discuss a moment ago that CCVF is a D12 system with high rolls being the goal. We also covered the very basics of skills and modifiers. What I need to do now is expand on that. When it comes to roles, I mentioned that modifiers are added. For human level abilities and skills, that number will range from 1 to 4. Superhuman abilities and skills range from 5 to pretty much infinity, though adding more to 12 to a role is a pretty rare feat. Most of the time, roles are opposed roles, so the idea is to roll higher than your opponent. Yes, I know, I realize it's a duh statement. I just figured I'd mention it anyway since we pick up new listeners on the regular and some of them are not experienced gamers, like my wife. CCVF makes no distinction between what most of us would know as a talent one is born with, an ability, a learned skill, academic knowledge, super abilities, powers, magic, yada, yada, none of the usual difference we'd see in a traditional role-playing game. All of these items are named as traits, and they're treated the same in the rules, all of them. Traits, by the way, are typically defined with one noun, like tough, vicious, or athletic. Some get the adjective-noun combo, like vicious warrior, while others get a phrase or other combination of nouns, verbs, and even the occasional complete sentence. It's English teacher's nightmare. In other words, traits get the definition the player gives them, which we mentioned is a special feature of the system a minute ago. The names are also basically just the window dressing, since they don't provide any special abilities or bonuses. Again, all traits are treated the same, and task resolution happens the same for all of them. It should also be noted that there's no difference between attack and defensive traits. In fact, the same trait can be used for both. Don't ask me why, I didn't write the rules, I'm just reporting on it. I should also mention that it's possible for a character to have two traits that are nearly identical or, hell, have two traits that do the exact same thing. And I'll explain why you'd want to do that in just a minute. Now, when you look at it on the surface, it'd be easy to think that CCVF would play like a goat rope. Look that up if you're curious what I mean. That would be an incorrect assumption, however, and as we get into some of these concepts that really make the game unique, I think you'll see why. While the names of traits can be pretty much whatever the player chooses them to be, how they can be used is a concrete rule. Use of a specific ability tied to a trait may only be used once per story scene. Once that happens, the trait is either completely useless or deactivated for the remainder of the scene. Should the player attempt to use that exact same trait again during the scene without having two of the same trait, it basically becomes a disadvantage roll. They take 2d12, take the lower roll. Each time they try using it again during the scene, add another d12 to the roll. So, the whole point of that is to encourage the player to try a different tactic once they've used a particular trait. Or at least try another one once they've tried a second time and failed. Now, as with most rules in a role-playing game, there can be an exception to this. And that's a trait with a bonus feature that would allow for multiple uses in a scene. Those are called signatures, and up to two levels of signature can be purchased at character creation. The rules specifically note that three uses of a trait per scene is the absolute limit. If they try to use it after that, they have to take detriment dice, and those are, as you might expect, not a good thing. 
Let's move on and look at the use of setback tokens. A player gets a setback token when they fail to beat an opponent's total during a test. They can either be damage harm or they can put the character at a disadvantage. They don't impact game stats, so don't go thinking your character goes into some sort of death spiral if they can't make their rolls consistently. The worst that can happen to them is that they, they pick up three or four of these in succession. They're considered to be out of commission until the end of the scene. By the way, when villains or monsters pick up two of these, they are considered to be defeated. And the setback tokens are the only form of damage or injury that are expressed in the game. There aren't any hit points, nor are there rules for being stunned, injured, or exhausted. So that makes this a very unique rule in the role-playing game universe. The big unique feature I wanted to get to is the concept of linking. This is where having several similar traits comes into play because it allows the character to join together two traits, which boosts the primary trait being used. The link provides a bonus to the trait, starting at plus one for human tier, plus three for superhuman, and plus five for what's called cosmic tier, which I assume would be like levels above 10 or whatever. Now, there is a catch to this. The trait you want to link others to must have the link modifier on it, otherwise you can't link anything to it. However, when it has the link, you can link as many other traits to it as you want. I know I said two, but that's an example. CCVF allows you to link as many as you want, thereby boosting your modifiers as high as possible. So, what keeps you from abusing the hell out of this? Well, remember a minute ago when we talked about traits only being used once during a scene? Well, when you stack them, all of the used traits are counted as having been used, so all of them are inactive for the rest of the scene. That basically means that if you want to stack 12 traits, it'd better be for something big considering you're going to be without them for a little while. I'd love to give you more of an idea of how this works, but the rules pretty much just say that the traits linked together should make sense. <laughs> so that being said, you and I probably have much different interpretations of what makes sense, so do with that what you will. There's one more item I want to cover under the different and unique concepts for CCVF, and that's complications. Now, complications aren't unique to the game, I grant you. However, the rules note that it's not an unusual thing for PCs to have three or four of them. So that makes things a little bit different. Another thing that makes them different is that there aren't layers or levels of complication. They all work the same way, and they never impact the character's point total. Basically, they trigger what are called inconveniences, and those play out over the course of the scene. Okay, so with the mechanics of the game covered, there's a few more points I wanted to hit on before we get to our second topic today. Many of you may have heard of the comic artist Bill Williams. There's quite a few pieces of his artwork in the core rulebook for CCVF, though those aren't original pieces. Williams allowed Spectrum to utilize pieces he'd done for his online comic Side Chicks, and it was considered a promotion for his website when they used them. That also means that the art wasn't specific to the game, so some of the pieces might not make much sense in their usage. However, and I've seen his art, it is cool as hell, so to have it in print would be a pretty damn cool thing. By the way, other artists who had their handiwork published in the book are Brent Sprecher, Scott Brewer, Tom Martin, and Derek Hand. Sprecher did the cover art for the book, and all four artists made sure to do their pieces in a superhero realism style. Now, normally I would do some reviews, but since this was a print-on-demand book, the reviews would come from DriveThruRPG, and I don't put a hell of a lot of faith in those. That being said, within days of the original release of the book, CCVF was the best-selling title in the history of Spectrum Games and saw the reviews getting between four and five stars out of a possible five. It also allowed for Stephen Shepard, Barack Blackburn, and Norman Franz to be hired on as full-time writers for the company, so there's another positive for Spectrum Games. 
Spectrum Games continues to provide supplements to support CCVF, and you can check all of this out on their website, spectrum-games.com. Next up on the tour is Brave New World. It's an alternate history superhero game created by Matt Forback and originally published by Pinnacle Entertainment Group in 1999. However, when Forbeck left PEG in 2000, he moved to Alderac Entertainment Group and he brought the game with him. AEG then released their own version of the game in 2000. Over the years, Forbeck has named Batman The Dark Knight Returns, Kingdom Come, X-Men, and 1984 as his inspirations for Brave New World. However, after doing my research for this show, I'd note that it also has the same feel as Watchmen, based on some of the alternate history used for the game. Since there's not a lot of game history to cover, though we'll cover a bit more of it in a few minutes when we break down the system, let's get into a bit of that alternate history. From the very beginning, it's noted that the history of the game world separated from the real world at some point in antiquity. The first time the public became aware of some sort of weird shit was during World War I, when a dying soldier figured out he had the power to turn himself incorporeal. He was dubbed the Silver Ghost, and he was the very first superhero. Now, as one would expect, the War Department brought him in as a spy and he helped in the war months earlier than it ended in reality. Shortly after the end of the war, other superheroes began to appear. The book states nobody's quite sure where they came from, but it seemed that some people would manifest powers where they were in mortal danger. During the 1920s and 30s, superheroes went about their business without disguises for the most part, and the government and majority of the citizens were fine with this, since they were helping those who needed it. Sure, where there's superheroes, there will be supervillains, but since the heroes kept the villains in check, nobody seemed to care. Scientists came up with a name for these superpowered beings, Homo Delta, meaning change, which was later shortened to Deltas. The pinnacle of the period came in the late 1930s when Yankee was officially deputized as a law enforcement officer in Chicago. He worked with Elliot Ness to bring down Al Capone and was seen as a role model for other superheroes. Let's move ahead to World War II. Much like in the real world, the attack on Pearl Harbor took place on December 7th, 1941. The difference was the appearance of Deltas on all sides of the war, as the Nazis and Imperial Japan had their own, which they used to counter those from the U.S. and the rest of the Allies. And yes, there were Deltas all over the world. The game presents itself primarily from an American point of view, which isn't all that much different from how it works in the real world, if we're going to be honest here. In the fall of 43, Yankee was captured along with his sidekick Sparky. The Nazis, as was their style, shipped him off to a concentration camp, and after two years of torture, Yankee and Sparky tried a prison break. Note I said tried. They were killed, apparently, along with all those who assisted in the escape. However, when the Nazis went to burn the bodies, something they hadn't expected happened. A new, much more powerful superhero came out of the fires. His name was Superior, and he was apparently Sparky come back to life and made way more powerful. He also managed to get Yankee and the rest of the supporters out of the fires before they could be done away with. When the Nazis called in their own Deltas, Superior took them all down single-handedly. He then ended the war by flying to Berlin to take out Hitler, then did Japan to deal with Emperor Hirohito. The Cold War then began, much like in the real world. The major difference this time is that instead of a nuclear arms race, the Cold War was about an alpha race. Alpha was that term for the new superhumans like Superior that were appearing on the scene. Most appeared shortly after the end of the war, but the Soviet Union figured out how to create a few of their own, so there's sort of an arms balance. One major difference in the Cold War from our reality is that the U.S. didn't complete their nuclear program quite as quickly. I mean, what was their need? Superior was his own special kind of deterrent, right? 
Well, they didn't last long since the Soviets did build a bomb and detonated it in 49. The U.S. hurried to finish their atomic project and the Cold War set in. This version of history also got Senator Joseph McCarthy in his HUAC hearings, but a Delta by the name of Patriot shamed him so badly, he wound up having to shut it down. Okay, sorry, it just occurred to me I'm spending a lot of time on history here. It really gets interesting from here, but you know what? I think I'm going to leave it for you to buy the game and read it. Let's get into the system itself. If you've heard the show we did discussing Deadlands, which is way earlier in the archive, you've got a pretty good idea of the system itself, since Brave New World simplified those rules. No playing cards or poker chips, and six-sided dice were the only dice used. One more change from the Deadlands system is that superpowers were laid out as power packages of similarly themed powers all grouped together. If you've ever seen or played City of Heroes, it's the same concept. I promised just a wee bit more history and background here, so let's hit it. The Brave New World books were basically all in black and white, though there were a few glossy color sections used for exposition on setting, plot, and very important information, like the introduction of new power packages. The back of each book had the guide's handbook, which was basically GMI's only information, including some secrets of the setting, which I won't get into here since I didn't cover all the history. The game was published from 1999 to early 2001, which is when AEG pulled the plug. Matt Forbeck has used his own website to provide tidbits of what the line was going to look like before the line was canceled, and that includes dropping more secrets about the setting. He's also expressed interest more than once in doing a new Brave New World material or two, but he's also noted the legal issues that keep him from doing so. On top of that, AEG released all of the Brave New World materials in PDF form on DriveThruRPG in 2009. No reviews again this week, though from most of the posts I saw online, if you've played this game, you probably love it. The alternate history tends to get a lot of praise, and the simplistic engine is also touted by the fans. And with all of that, we've come to the end of today's show. Next week, I tie together both of my podcasts by deep diving the game I'm currently building a campaign for on the campaign build-along, Fallout. Speaking of the campaign I'm building, you can check out all of the details on that by checking out Bad GM's campaign build-along. We're now seven episodes deep into the new season, and the campaign build is chugging right along. Bad GM's campaign build-along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. I'd also note that I've finally gotten back to recording videos for our various outlets, so if you follow us on Facebook and YouTube and make visits to the website, you will see exclusive videos for all three posted right now. Check them out when you get the chance. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. Online, it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we get into Fallout. And yes, I'm going to need to do some background on the video game in order for the role-playing game to make sense. It's all good, though, because I've got to admit, that game's pretty damn cool. That's next week, though. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role-Playing History.